attention I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Dave Wakeman, a writer, teacher and consultant dubbed the Revenue Architect. Dave's clients call him a shot of adrenaline, helping to tackle their marketing and profitability challenges head on. His work has taken him across the globe, working with huge brands like American Express, Google and Coca-Cola. He's also host of The Business of Fun a quality pod on marketing live experiences for folks selling sport, theatre and entertainment. Dave says, To be successful at strategy, you have to be able to see the world through two different eyes at once. The first eye is the eye of the analyst, and the second eye belongs to the architect. The architect needs vision, creativity and the willingness to be bold in pursuit of something that the world has never seen before. Welcome to the show, Dave. That is some kind of introduction. I did not know that um, I'm starting to ask myself, who exactly is this person that you're talking to today? <laughs> he sounds good, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he does. He sounds great. Um, shoot, man, I can't wait to listen to this thing. This guy's going to be amazing. Uh, thank you for having me. This I'm very, very excited uh, to be here. Um, you know, the, I do think that this is probably the greatest marketing podcast in the world, and that's only slightly hyperbolic uh, because I have to be nice to you, so you'll put the thing out now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thanks, man. It's payback. To, I mean, it's qu seven quickfire questions. This is the best part. Beer or margaritas? Beer or margaritas is absolutely beer. Come on, man. That was too easy. You got to work, work these things up. I mean, they start easy. They start easy. Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, I was thinking you were going to ask me like a, a challenging question because I knew there'd be a beer question. <laughs> and would it be like Beaver Town or Brewdog? And I was like, well, shoot, that's going to be a little tough, but it would be that's Beaver, be Town, Beaver Town. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I do love Brewdog because they're always very nice to me over the years. And there's always one like in London. So you can always find like a proper like IPA. So I, you know, so I'm a fan of both. And I was expecting something like that, not margaritas. I mean, that's easy. That's too easy. Okay. What about this? Number two, hockey or baseball? Ooh, now that's a little tougher. If you asked me as a younger Dave, I would have said baseball, but I'd say now I really like hockey. Hockey, the Washington Capitals is the local team. I go to more, way more Washington Capitals games than I do to either the Nationals or the Orioles, which are the two closest baseball, game, baseball teams. So I would say at this point, I would definitely go with hockey. Uh, number three, Conte or Poch? Oh, I knew this was coming. And there, no, you didn't warn me. I just knew you were going to ask this. And so I would say I'm a romantic at heart. And so I would like to lean towards Pochettino. But I'm going to go with Conte because I feel like Spurs fans, the team, uh, they needed to move past Pochettino. And Conte is a good way of doing that. You know, and uh, he's been doing tremendous work, uh, but I will never not love Pochettino. Right. Sticking with that theme, White Hart Lane or the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? Uh, you know, again, I'm a romantic 
Uh, but I never was able, I never had a chance to go to a game at the old White Hart Lane. So I'm not as sentimental about it as, as other people are. Uh, so it would be more for me, it would be Wembley or the new White Hart Lane. But I would still say uh, the, the new White Hart Lane because it's amazing. It's the most incredible stadium in the world. Yeah, yeah, it, re- it really is. Yeah, okay, well answered. To me, I see them as the same thing, really. It will always be White Hart Lane, so I just want to... Number five. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. This is going to be good. <laughs> this is the lesser evil. The billable hour or start with why. Oh, see, you're like reading my notes here, too, with the start with why stuff. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I mean, come on, that thing's worthless. Um, the billable hour, though, is also... Jeez. Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to say start with why as a better one, uh, because I feel like the billable hour is the root of almost all evil for consultants and, um, you know, people who price because it is um, it costs people more money than start with why I could ever hope to. Yeah. OK, great answer. We're going to get we're going to get more into the billable hour soon. And on that theme, there's number six is units of cost or units of value. Well, units of value. I mean, come on. Units of cost is like putting you in the position to be a commodity. Units of value is the way the conversation should be. Um, you got to like focus on value, not cost, because nobody cares really. Price is just a BS um, objection that people lay out for you just because you haven't done a good job explaining value. So it's always about value. Yeah, that was a tap in. Right, last one. Yeah, that was a little that was a little like I'm sure this one's gonna be awesome. This is gonna be like the toughest one. <laughs> this this one's good because there's a great story behind it. Right. Eddie Murphy or Eddie Vedder? Oh well, it's definitely Eddie Vedder. Um but it, it's God, how could I pick the, the, those are the two greatest Eddies ever. <laughs> it's Eddie Vedder, but not by much because I mean we were, and I know where this story came from because we were talking about how much we loved like Raw and like as kids we got to watch Raw. Uh, and then uh, there's an Eddie Vedder story that will probably come up at some point. So <laughs> just a little tease for now. Yeah, I was gonna say it would be definitely be Eddie Vedder because I am a tremendous fan of not not just his his professional work, but the work he does. Um, he said something really great, and we can probably get into this more later. Uh, that really stuck with me at a concert that I was at one time, and he said like, "Look, when you're." Uh, been given this light and you have an opportunity to shine this light on others you have to take it something to that effect and you know his work through all the different charities and organizations that his band and their charitable foundation that him and his wife support uh it's he's just an un uh just an inspiration you know and and you know love his music or not you have to be really really um you know, admire the work he does. Well said. Right. So, Dave, thank you for joining us. Um, oh, you know, awesome. we like to uh, we like to celebrate Root's guest take in their career, specifically when they start, mostly because we think there's huge value in people understanding this idea of the right way doesn't really exist. So for our audience, could you tell us what was your first ever job? What was your first proper job? And make sure this somehow takes the route of chatting about nightclubs because I've seen that in your Twitter bio too. Okay. And so let me ask you this. And actually the first job is easy. Um, American football, right? When I was a teenager in middle school, eighth grade, probably 13 years old, I sold uh, racks of Coca-Cola at high school football games Uh, in the States, especially in the South where I grew up. High school football is like a religion. So I would sell these racks of sodas. I, I was trying to remember how big they were. And I think it was probably like they'd hold like two dozen. 
or you know, twenty four to thirty Coca Colas at a time, and you'd walk up and down the the stands. Uh, anybody want a Coke? I think they were a dollar, and for each rack I sold, I got five dollars. That was my first job. I was thirteen years old. That's easy. Um, the second part of the question, though, is I do have a question, and I'm not doing this to be needlessly uh, obtuse or like difficult. But how do you define proper? I think it's got to be a job that had a significant effect on your career that you found the right industry, or it could be something that really meant something. Yeah. Okay. So then, in that case, I've been very lucky um, because I've had, in some ways, I've had a, a many number of jobs that have had a tremendous impact on me. Um, you know, we'll get to the nightclubs because that that really is um, where I think I learned almost every lesson that I applied to my marketing career, uh, even though it was not a marketing job specifically. And yeah, I asked the question because I was like, going, I think I was probably like almost what am I, 47 now. So I was probably 37 by the first time I had like a job that you would define specifically as a marketing or advertising job. Uh, so, you know, so like when you're saying proper, I would be like, I'd be a bad example for a proper like marketing and advertising job because it was like, <laughs> I was a long way down the road before I ever got to that. Yeah. Yeah. But you say a bad example. I think that, I don't think that's a bad example. I think, I think the most interesting and um, kind of talented people I meet in, in this industry have taken a very scenic route to get into this industry. And that's what we're trying to really elicit. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So scenic that we have, we have that in, uh, we have that definitely handled here then. So I did that job and then I held a series of, uh, you know, just regular jobs. Um, the first job that really like stood out and made me open my eyes though, is I worked for the city, uh, where I grew up uh, doing recreation over the summer. And I say that this, you know, you said it have an impact. It was because I was 19 years old and I started, um, you know, and somehow I ended up being a manager, uh, of people at 19 years old. And it was ki kids that were my own age. And then I, to have people come back to me and go, you know, you had such an influence on me and they're the same age as I am. Like you were such a great like leader, uh, and manager. And I was like, well, well that's just sounds like garbage to me because I was like, well, I didn't know how to get out of my own way at 19 years old. The, the first like real, job though where I, I understood the importance and power of marketing and sales and revenue generation was definitely a business I started when I was 17, uh, which I wouldn't call a proper job, but I started a auto detailing business and car wash business. And I was able to very fortunately uh, win a contract with the Florida lottery. So I washed all the Florida lottery vans and I got $20 per car washed. And so then I had employees uh, that was pretty good. But, I, you know, that was like it was really like pretty lucky that I fell into that because I still wouldn't I couldn't recreate that if I had if it was the last thing I could was going to do. It was not. And then, you know, you do all your odd jobs. But then I fell into nightclubs and I was taking a summer school class at the community college in Fort Lauderdale where um, I went to high school and was a young adult until about 22 or 23. And I met this guy called Mike. And Mike gave me one of the greatest pieces of um, advice that I ever heard. And he go and and then we'll get to the nightclub things. But hopefully this is not too risque. And if you can, you can edit it out if you want to. But this was like so great. He goes, Dave, if you've ever gotten laid, you're in sales and marketing. And I said, wow, that's like and he explained it to me through like going, look, if you're going to do that, you, you, you know, if you get somebody to do that with you, then you're definitely selling yourself. And I was like, going. Wow. And that like really turned the, 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 the lights off for me. 
<laughs> I don't know if that's too risque for your audience, but that's like where the first time. And then Mike introduced me to um, a friend of his who owned a um, valet parking service for a nightclub and he needed people to help him. And um, through the, the that, it was how I got opened up into nightclubs. And, you know, the, you still have some pretty good nightclub life, uh, nightlife in England. Uh, there is... Uh, you know, many, many nightclubs that I have been to in the city of Birmingham over the years because I somehow end up in Birmingham every time I'm in England. But nightclubs were really, really powerful because you are really connected to the customer. And why it was so impactful was for really like one meeting. And I was trying to remember last night while I was making notes for the the podcast today, what we called these damn meetings on Monday. But every Monday we would get together and we would try to come up with ideas. So one time there was uh, two guys, uh, Dave Townsend and Gary Smith. And Gary ended up becoming the chief marketing officer of the um, a fondue restaurant, the Melting Pot. And he comes to us, he goes, we need to raise our per check average 25 cents. And through that question, I was able to come up with the greatest question that I ever learned to ask. And that is, what gin do you prefer? And so it taught me, and this is the question that taught me everything I know about marketing and pricing and sales, because I found out through this, like through this question of how do you get 25 cents per customer more out of these things that nobody doesn't wants just a well gin and tonic, right? No, everybody has a preference for their gin. And because everybody has a preference to their gin, it opens up this idea of a story because your the gin you choose is a story about who you are. And because you're using this thing, people have a better experience, right? So, you know, they, they feel better about the, their time at the club. They feel better about their experience, probably feel a little, you know, a little more romantic or a little, you know, like a little hotter, like they're going to pick up somebody, you know, at the club and, you know, like they're going to dance better and all these things. And then the magic thing was like, I learned about profitability because when you're dealing with a nightclub, uh, the bulk that you buy the liquor in. Um, the co- incremental cost is very small. Like uh, in the nine, mid nineties, when this was happening, I'm going to say a well drink probably costs $4 at the nightclub. And the cost to make that drink was a dollar. That's a well drink. But if I charge somebody for a Tangeray and tonic or a Bombay and tonic, which were probably the two most popular at the time, the incremental cost, if I'm being generous, was probably a quarter more um, cost to me, but I would charge $2 more. So I would almost double the profit for, you know, for 25%, 25 cents more. Um, you know, so like it was a pretty powerful lesson that like profitability is tied to the price. And also I suppose you have the benefit of, of, of seeming more personable. Well, absolutely. Yes. And as I moved on through like my career and, you know, at opening nightclubs and bars and like, you know, being close to customers and understanding it really got me to like some of the really big moments in my career, but I would win every sales contest just because I would, I took that question and I internalized it into everything I did. You know, it was like, never like, Oh, you just want to drink. Oh, well, what's going on? You know, you just, you like 30 seconds of conversation might double a check. Right. And if you doubled your check, you get tips, you make more, more money. And it, you know, and it was, that was super powerful. So nightclubs opened the door to everything. And I learned advertising through partnerships with radio at promotions through the things, the promotions we do at the beach to get college kids there during spring break, um, you know, product because we were packaged different nights in different ways. 
operations, marketing, sales, strategy. I mean, I learned everything in, in the span of these three years that I was opening nightclubs in Fort Lauderdale and in other, a couple other cities around the country. It was like a really, really incredible uh, experience. Yeah, that sounds ace. I like that. I like that for, well, for two reasons. One about being so connected to the customer because you're literally in the customer's face uh, all night. So that, I mean, that's 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 so far removed from say the B two B type of business that you know the clients that we perhaps work with uh, predominantly. But I also love the fact that that what gin do you pr- prefer? I mean, I suppose nowadays you'd probably suggest it was a you know psychology or behavioural science at play because it's certainly a nudge of sorts. It reminds me of Rory Sutherland that that question he hates at restaurants, red or white, because as soon as you answer, bam, you're you're drinking wine, you're not drinking gin. No, I mean he he's definitely right, and it's I would say that it probably is really tied to psychology, but the more you know the more important thing to me was uh, it was that relationship with the customer, and it was a the it was that relationship in a way that it gave you the chance to give people a much better experience, you know, and to me. Uh, I always fall back on it when people ask me, how do you define or describe or teach somebody about market orientation? I go, that's market orientation right there. It's understanding that nobody wants to go to the club and have a well gin and tonic. So the simplest way to make somebody feel special and like to understand the person is to ask them what kind of gin they prefer. And it works just as well for rum or vodka or anything. And vodka is probably even better because all vodka is basically the same (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah well said my na- my neighbors might disagree but they're wrong well i have a uh, uh, some family members that are, are invested in a vodka company and they would tell me i was wrong too and i'd be like going yeah i'm pretty sure i've been around enough booze in my time that i know that it's <laughs> i know that i'm right but you know it's not worth an argument and and i guess then without um you know making too many assumptions because I, I want to talk more about pricing and especially value-based pricing but I suppose that kind of immediacy of the of the, like the significant of price when you are in nightclubs facing customers asking what gin you prefer, then it's actually it's, it's right. It's at your fingertips, isn't it? So like the you're so attached to that type of conversation and decision that when you did hit 37 years old or whatever it was, it was probably a much easier and more natural question for you to kind of explore than a lot of marketers who see that, you know, the, that particular P is quite terrifying sometimes. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that I was lucky in the fact that like from the very start, right? So in that nightclub experience, I was attached to customer and price right away. And so I never had the fear of the fourth, of the P, you know, the pricing P. And actually that P helped me not at all in the uh, job I had at 37 uh, because I worked on the, um, re-election campaign for President Barack Obama. And uh, so I ended up writing a lot of ads for uh, his re-election effort for the ad agency, one of the ad agencies that was handling all of his media uh, and all of his advertising needs. So I absolutely like price had nothing to do to it, do with it, but the call to action and understanding how to express value definitely did. So what led you to marketing then? So how did that, how did that even happen? Basically, how do you go from nightclubs to marketing? Okay, let's see. <laughs> now this is this is interesting. Um, I hope for people. Um, so I w- nightclubs is all just marketing. It's all mystique. It's all story. It's all value. It's all giving people an experience, right? So there is no difference between being a marketer for a product, a car, a service than there is for being one in the in a nightclub. 
the first job where I had an inkling though that I was moving towards being a marketer was I helped open the Experience Music Project in Seattle. And that is a museum that was started by Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. And he, about, again, I started out work like in the bar restaurant, like experience aspect of it because I'd moved to Seattle. I didn't know anybody and I didn't have any connections. And so I, this was a job that I could obtain. Uh, and I met his sister who was the CEO at the time, Jody Allen. And uh, Jody one time pulled me aside and she said, you know, you do a really great job of selling yourself. And I think you can sell the museum and you can sell this experience, um, you know, and I would like to see you take on more of that role. And so that was the first time that I really started to move into something that would, I would define as really being marketing based and the job, you know, and the, and the role was really to help people come to and experience the museum. It is a really cool museum. It's changed its name now to Mopop, but it was built on the spirit of creativity as expressed through rock and roll music. And so, you know, part of the the, the remit to use the British term would be um, to get people to donate money to make sure artists uh, wanted to be a part of the experience and using, you know, being a part of the museum. And it made sure people, not just tourists, but locals would come and experience the museum. They'd come before basketball games or they'd come before events at the arena. And that was the, so it was kind of a natural slide from the nightclubs to a different kind of service. And then from there, it was a, uh, I kept sliding like along the service route. So services, um, especially around entertainment were my road into marketing, but it was never like a instant where I was like going, I am now officially a marketer. That never, that never happened. I don't even know if I would call my say exactly that I am a marketer now. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and uh, so you've obviously got experience with with lots of different types of live experience from from that entertainment to theatre to sports. Obviously, you know nightclubs. You I suppose falls within entertainment. Did you find new challenges in each instance? How did that differ going from nightclubs to I suppose now more recently working in in, in sports arenas and so on? Oh yeah, there, there's definitely new challenge. There's different challenges for everything, and uh, you know, just to go back to the last thing I said, which is about like I wouldn't know if I would call myself a marketer now. I absolutely know that I am a marketer, um, and, and so I don't want to like turn anybody off. Like, oh, I'm running from marketing. I'm not. I love the job of being a marketer because it's like, you know, probably the most important job that a business has, and it, it's undermined. You know, t- every turn, um, it's so super important. But back to your question of about different challenges, there's absolutely new challenges all the time because, you know, it's it's like any job or industry, like people don't stand still, right? What people value is often evolving. I mean, there are some things that are absolutely, um, you know, normal and that, you know, they're always true, right? People want to be connected to others, right? Like we, we are, we are a social creature and we want to get together in groups. People want to feel loved, you know, and they want to like share time with people that they love and care about, right? People love experiences. Experiences are, have been around as far, you know, as far back as we can remember, right? There's no different than go, no difference from going to a Tottenham Hotspur match now as there was going to like the, you know, seeing the Roman chariots or like the first marathon at the modern Olympics. Those are still just experiences. So, so those things are similar, 
where the difference comes is that, you know, there's new technologies, you know, people, each generation has its own story and its own way of, uh, you know, experiencing joy or togetherness or happiness. And those things are, are really where the cool parts of being a marketer come in, because there are things that are absolutely the same, but then there are also things that you absolutely have to pay attention to because nothing is one size fits all. It's like, um, in Mark Ritson's brand management mini MBA, he tells you that each brand is unique. And to me, each experience, like each client, each opportunity is unique because you're never going to experience the same project or the same game or event with the same people ever again. You know, so like the part of the challenge is like, does this work here? Right. And if it doesn't work here, you know, why not? Like what's different? And is that like something that's consistent with the world around me? Or is this like a fluke? You know, this is this a one off situation, you know, and and that sort of just always sense of awe and inspiration about meeting new people or being in a new environment is really, you know, one of the cool things about what I've done over the years. Well, before we, before we zoom in on anything in particular, I really I really like the way you positioned yourself a few minutes ago, and then obviously, you know, quite rightly clarified that you're not running away from marketing. I think your route into marketing is interesting because it seems to me that in a time when I think marketing is, I suppose, generally suffering a, a confidence crisis of sorts, you know, you've got marketers out there who are trying to prove that they do have a significant business value, whereas you came from the business value side of things. And then I suppose retrospectively realized you were using tools that you would traditionally suggest were for marketers to use. So actually you, your success of running businesses, whether it was nightclubs or wherever else it was, you already had that demonstrated value. Whereas I think nowadays there's often marketers out there who are trying to kind of win that, you know, metaphorical seat back in the boardroom or however you want to best articulate it. And it's because they don't see the business impact that they have, or maybe they don't get the respect that that function really deserves. So for me, right, I, I have been lucky in that the value idea was there from the very start. And I understood it. Um, I just didn't always understand the language of marketing because, you know, I and I think this is only accelerated now. It's that, you know, marketing gets put down right? Marketing is like those guys who they throw the, the funny parties or they're like, going, what exactly does marketing do? And my learning of marketing was, you know, really attached to the bottom line. It was attached to, you know, sales to the point where as it, it, I have a, a degree in marketing and then I have many trainings and I think we'll probably touch on these things, the importance of that later. Um, but I didn't necessarily know that, that those were the jobs of marketers. I just knew that that was where if I knew if I could figure out how to make money and how to create profit, then I would always have security. And I grew up in um, a really, you know, I went to high school in Fort Lauderdale, but until I was 14 years old, I grew up in northern Georgia. And so I, I know that there are people that listen to this from probably all over the world Um where I grew up in Northern Georgia was a county that probably had 5,000 people. You know, my, I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, I was the um, first person, actually, this will, this will blow people's mind maybe, or maybe yours at least, like, cause this is a, just a conversation with us is I was the first person in my, my family that always had indoor plumbing. And so I didn't have this like romantic thing of with like, marketing or strategy or any of these things, I knew I needed to figure out a good job 
and something that would um, allow me to have a quote unquote, I guess, inverted commas for, for the British audience, uh, good job. And so I knew that if you ma- you could make money and that you could create value, then you would have some level of security. And that was what really drove me and, you know, into the direction of marketing and sales and all of the, all of these things, it was necessity. But I think I missed the question. I don't know if I answered it at all. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 01189-952-007. Only last week, some pod listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and lead generation. But we're not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. Marketing is incredibly confused with sales. I think you're the one who's more confused, Gary V. Sunshine. No, I think no, I think you did. Here we you go. Just added more meat to the bones of the question because the question was effectively more so about, I suppose, the route or or the way you would frame what you were doing prior to realizing that it's had huge similarities with what someone who starts in marketing would think of them attempting to do for a business so whilst at the moment there's this seems to be this real kind of challenge for marketers to demonstrate that they have a significant role in a business's success you almost were like already in the in the making businesses successful arena and then retrospectively through various things no doubt experience but also the training and you've nodded to mark ritson uh, brand mba realized that actually a lot of what you were doing instinctively and from being you know in the cold face of, of, of customers uh, customer facing was actually a lot of marketing oh yeah and i would i would say that like probably as i got older and i started to realize this too i started to feel you know and this is probably where i'll pay mark another hat tip here uh you know, the mini MBA, the, the mini MBA in brand management, both of those things, you know, talk about the confidence. It was the, um, there was probably a few years where I was like, going, what value do I really add to marketing or like to the marketing conversation? And I was like, well, actually, there's a whole world of stuff. And it's like having the conversation and the ability to understand, you know, how these experiences apply to marketing and like help people understand these concepts has been really powerful to me because I probably always felt like going a little, I don't want to use imposter syndrome because I think that's a dodge, but like a little bit of imposter syndrome around being a marketer just because of most of these jobs never would have been like really termed as marketing. Yeah, yeah, and no, I totally agree. And I think that that um, confidence that you would have picked up from from that and various other sources, much like I have myself, then enables you to talk with more authority about things, whether it is pricing, whether it is strategy. I am a complete blowhard now. Let's not kid ourselves. Like before, I might have I might have heads, but now I am completely like going. If you, I know this. If you don't like it, it's fine. You're wrong. So, so yeah. <laughs> that confidence cuts both ways. <laughs> I think two of the the really meaty topics I want to get into actually both come up in our listener questions, and you know we've had a load sent in, so I think we'll move there. But before we do, just so partly so I don't forget. Can you share your Eddie Vedder story briefly? Okay, so, and I'll, I will share this in a very anodyne way. Uh, it's not anodyne at all, but the... No, you don't need to go on it. No, 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 no. So so anyway, there's this organization. I, I Giles and I were having coffee at Costa Coffee, um, you know, recently, and 
we were talking about, you know, how I built the, how I built my business and how uh, he's been building gas with his team. And I was saying like a lot of what I do is every year I will pick one or two uh, organizations that I can do pro bono work for. And a couple of years back, 2019, I picked uh, the EB research foundation. So that's ebresearch.org. It's epididymis isis paloma. It is a rare skin disease um, and it is brutal. It is. Um, so if we have seven layers of skin that cover our bodies, these kids have one or two and it makes the kids feel like they're constantly on fire. Uh, and so uh, I met the, the executive director, a guy called Michael Hund, and he's an incredible nonprofit executive. Uh, he's an incredible leader. Um, and I said, look, I want to help any way I can. So we worked on some st- we worked up some stuff around strategy and marketing. Um, so come to f- come to find out and I knew knew this going in, but like still, I didn't know how important or, or and how powerful this would be that one of three founding families was Eddie Vetter and his wife, Jill. And uh, they were moved because they know a, a, a child that has epididymis isis paloma. Uh, you know, they wanted to contribute uh, to the efforts, um, you know. Ed and Jill are very uh, in, involved and, um, you know, it, it's just a great organization. So I would encourage anybody to look at, look it up, but Ed was going to be on TV and he was going to be part of a, a, I forget the exact name of it. I think it was like something like we, we something, and it had nothing to do with we work, um, but it was like something with we, uh, but he wrote a song for a young man called Eli and you can find it go by Googling, come say hi with Eli on the internet. And so our job was to figure out how to use Ed's appearance on TV to drive uh, awareness and brand equity for EB Research Foundation. And so, and one of the challenges, one of the things we wanted to do was like use this as a kickoff to, you know, make some long-term strategic actions, right? And so one of the things was like, well, how do we, how are we going to drive web traffic to the, to the website? And I sat in a meeting and this goes with Giles has a question about, or had a, had a, uh, an experience where somebody pretended like it was all their wisdom and strategy that drove web traffic to a certain soccer team, which I will let Giles say if he wants to, without ever saying like, this absolutely is because of um, X player signing with X club. And at the time we were sitting there at the coffee shop and I go, so the different approach that I had was like, I told everybody that like, going, look, we will tell the board and we'll tell everybody like, look, we're going to like try, get all this, this web traffic and all of this excitement and all this buzz around the brand. And we, but we won't say why. And I go, and why is because it's Eddie Vedder. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and, and, they're, and, they're, and I was like, going, it's just so obvious. Like I was like, if Eddie Vedder's on TV, people are definitely going to Google it. They're definitely going to go to the website. They're definitely going to be involved. And I was like going, you and most people just run away from it. And I will, you can, you tell your story or if not, but it was like pretty good because it was the exact opposite story where I ran right to Yeah. I ran right towards it. Yeah. Some, some, some people just don't show their hand, do they? They don't show their hand. And, and, I, and I sat in this uh, really painful talk once by one of those uh, social type agencies that, that, that often over kind of elaborate or, or put a bit more shine on what they do. But anyway, this guy was claiming credit for the, uh, 
how viral a tweet had gone that he had written, but the tweet was from Zlatan Ibrahimovic, one of the most famous footballers on the planet, signing for Man United, one of the most famous clubs in world football. He was claiming credit for the 20 million retweets because of the way he had written the tweet, and it was just absolutely scandalous. And I remember looking around me thinking, surely everyone else can see that this guy is just claiming... Uh, claiming something that's utter bullshit. Everyone else was just applauding like seals and I just so found it so depressing. And then on the flip side, I told you that and you just, your Eddie Vedder story just completely restored balance for me. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I was going to say, I only made it anodyne because I did not use the colourful language that I used. Um, but it, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes some of the success of some of these campaigns and some of these things you do, it's all about being in the right place at the right time. Like if you had to ask me, what is a key theme of my career? I'd say being in the right place at the right time has been a, uh, one of the big winners for me. Yeah. 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 And we should all, we should all embrace that. We shouldn't try to like kind of understate that either. Uh, right. So listener question time, because I've got four to, to work through. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. We usually choose two, but we've got four. Matt, I think that's Matt Zaracina, Zaracina. I've just murdered his surname. Sorry, Matt, I'm an idiot. (laughs) Matt has asked, how should emerging tech uh, trends be, or tech slash tech trends be accounted for or incorporated into a client's broader strategic plans? First off, like Matt is a big Spurs fan, so we should we should definitely I know Matt, so he's uh, definitely a big Spurs fan. I like Matt already. Yeah, yeah, good guy. He sent me actually a DM from a Spurs match, and he's like, "Oh, I wish you were here." He's American, so I see him uh, fairly regularly, um, so I know exactly who this is. But tech and tech trends and how they should play into things, uh, and this is not something that we. Um, we got a chance to cover too much, but I guess we'll cover it now, which is the importance of setting a strategy um, before you decide what tools you are going to use to implement the strategy. Um, too often when you're dealing with people who have a new new tech or want to use new tech or you know are too close to the trends, uh, they don't have a strategy in place. They're just like going, oh man, I have to use TikTok because everybody is using TikTok. I have to be on Facebook because Giles told me I needed to be on Facebook and I must have a Facebook strategy, which is not a strategy at all. It is tactics. So the the answer from my point of view about using tech and tech trends is like it really depends. And it depends because you have to make wise decisions about what your strategy is. You know, what I found, I did some research uh, over the last, I, I mean, I constantly am doing research. I, I am a uh, take my own medicine on this. But I found that most organizations, uh, you know, or I guess about 40, 45% of organizations don't actually have a clear laid out strategy that they can point to. And I thought that that was a ridiculous number until I dug in and I think it actually might be low. You know, so if you before you're you make any decision about how you're going to use new tech or follow tech trends, you have to understand a couple choices around strategy. And You know, the first one is like, where are you trying to go? Like, what's the ambition of the business? What's success going to look like? And the second one is like, where you're going to compete? Like, what's the segment of the market you're going after? And then you need to understand why somebody's going to pick you over anybody else. 
then you can start to make those decisions about, you know, should I be following trends or should I be following using new tech? Because before you've answered those three questions or understood those three aspects of your business, you can't realistically say, oh, I want this piece of tech or I'm going to follow this trend because you have not made a decision about what your business is, who you are, you know, how you're going to move forward. And and, and that would be my answer to that question. It's like you have to, it, it just highlights the importance of strategy. And in too many places, strategy is just discarded. Yeah, perfect. Couldn't agree more as well as, as, as I think you know. Um, but I think so many people, it's, it's actually quite easy to, to, to do things back to front sometimes, especially with the kind of media rhetoric of new tech appearing on the scene. And, you know, when things do launch, it's almost like you can't move, especially in industry press, about how shiny this new thing called TikTok might be or whatever channel it might be. Um, and equally, it's not to say that that tool isn't going to be of huge benefit to you, but it's just a bit cart before the horse to think that way around. Yeah, it's it, it's e you know it could be the greatest tool that you use, but you have to make that decision determination on your own, and it's very difficult for people to push back on whatever the conventional wisdom is. But the the conventional wisdom is why. If you look at, I uh, use a Peter Drucker metric, and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna try to tell you exactly the name for it because I would butcher this. But it was just like the, you know, the return on your capital, right? The return on capital for most Western businesses is unimpressively low, you know, and that's because everybody's in this race to like, let me win, let me win a, an advertising award at Con, you know, let me get an uh, ad age, or let me be featured in some, you know, some kind of business press, whereas like the goal of a business is to create and keep a customer and to generate enough profit so that the business is sustainable and is a adds value to society. It's not to just win awards and be like this shiny new thing or, you know, to make your friends like going, Oh, look at what I, look at what I did with TikTok. I mean, that's not, I mean, it could be a goal, but it shouldn't be the goal of your business. It should be something else you're doing. Yeah, exactly that. Uh, I've had a question from uh, that great man, Nick Ellis as well. Yeah, let's do that. One of my favorite episodes. Oh, right. Yeah, and my wife. She's, she's got a bit of a soft spot for Nick, which is um, I'm working on. I told, I told her that he kicks cats and orphans. <laughs> and this isn't a million miles away from what we just touched on, I suppose. But Nick says, why do brands think they have a place in the metaverse? Haven't they read Snow Crash? Don't they know they ruin everything by plastering ads everywhere? So... <laughs> <laughs> Why do variants think they have a place in the metaverse? Uh, I have still not necessarily bought into the idea that the metaverse is going to be uh, anything super substantial. Um, you know, I um, when it comes to like NFTs, the metaverse, blockchain, all of this newfangled uh, digital, uh, these digital assets, um, I have found that there is a, I'm going to say, I'm going to be generous today because, uh, you know, as I was telling you, I had a little illness, so I'm feeling a little bit more generous, a little bit less uh, uh, going to be dismissive of everybody right now. Uh, I'm going to say that there's less than less than five people I trust on this topic. The metaverse just seems like a made up way for Facebook to keep its relevance, right? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, and there's nothing in Facebook's history or background that would lead me to believe that the metaverse is going to be anything more than Libra, which if you don't remember what Libra was, Libra was there, the thing that was going to revolutionize money that Mark Zuckerberg had created. The metaverse though, and why don't, why haven't people decided that they can, um, you know, it's not a good idea to plaster 
uh, ads everywhere, it's really because of the people are measuring the wrong things. And it goes back to earlier in the conversation, I think what we were talking about, understanding value, understanding pricing, understanding profitability. People don't necessarily understand that. So then it's easy to use metrics like, well, the number of impressions matters, even though the number of impressions is probably worthless, right? Like, you know, because what is the famous, again, I'm leaning heavily on Mark Ritson. We should just have like a, a, a triple podcast with Mark. He did a, a, a talk that I saw one time where he talked about like, here's what an impression looks like, you know, and it's like maybe a quarter or an eighth of the screen that you is clicked through for like a tenth of a second or something crazy like that. Uh, an impression is probably mostly garbage, right? I mean, if you've been on Twitter, you can go through and get 50 impressions or views of a video just because you had your cell phone open while you were on a call. You know, so like it's because it's an easy metric to measure. It doesn't mean it's a good me- measure. It just means it's easy. And if as long as you're rewarded for something, of course, you're going to stick with that, right? I mean, this is human nature, or at least the nature of modern capitalism, unfettered capitalism, which is like, if you're rewarded for it, it must be right. Yeah, very good. I also recall my, um, uh, one of my older brothers, Andrew, his time at Leo Burnett years and years ago, when they opened an agency in Half-Life. And I, and I, and I still to this day remember being in his house and him telling me that. And, and I was just, part of me had that marketing magpie thing of, oh, that sounds interesting and really smart and sexy. And then the other half, I was just thinking, but why? <laughs> yes. Yeah. There are, there is a um, endless list and I'm sure it's probably, if I open my emails now, because I really have set up my email so that they just get sh- sent into a folder. Well, people who are going to explain to me why NFTs are going to change sports and live entertainment. I, there is a, it, there's like no end to those people who are want to tell me this. And I'm like going, but is it really? I was like, going, I got the NFT for the Batman movie and it's just like a, a JPEG of a Batman movie poster that I, you know, <laughs> and it's one of like 10,000. I was like, going, is that really valuable? Is that really going to change anything? Or is that just going to be annoying? Nobody has been able to really, really um, explain it to me in a way that I don't end up going, that just sounds like BS. I think you're bullshitting me. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? I think the line, sadly, the line between whether it's bullshit or valuable is often very, very fine. Oh, uh, especially, especially when you start introducing art into things. So you never know. I um, definitely only trust the people who go, well, you, you know, and there's, um, I will credit her and then I will definitely um, say that this impression is all mine. But the one of the only people, it, okay, maybe the only person that I listen to is a former guest on your podcast. And that's Zoe Skamen, uh, and, you know, because she's incredibly smart and thoughtful about this stuff. And I think that I don't know if she said this, so I'm going to just this is all me. Um you know, but it's like when she goes, it may not work. <laughs> it may not be anything at all. And, you know, and that's the only opinion I would um, really trust is like somebody who's willing to say like, on, you know, it might not, but it might be a great thing. And the thing is, is like, why wouldn't you take a shot on it if you see value in it? You know, because there are limited opportunities to make a real dent sometimes in, a, you know, in a new spot. And, you know, and I, I would, you know, if she did, if she didn't say that, then I'll accept credit for it. Uh, because if the hate mail should come to me, if she did say it, I think she's a genius for saying it. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, no, funny enough, her name came up earlier, a few hours ago here at GAS. We were talking about, uh, we're talking about something that's, I suppose, unrelated, but the conclusion we made, and I nodded to Zoe and her discussions she often has or recommendations around sci-fi because it kind of explores that it depends question or what if this, then what would happen type uh, thought processes, was that we needed more people in marketing who weren't afraid to just say, we think this might work, but we're not sure, but it's worth a go. And having that that attitude and that mindset, because I think that lots of people have you know probably written it well. I know Bob Hoffman certainly has talked about how marketing is just kind of a, a way of strategically placing bets that we think, based on our experience and knowledge and smarts and everything else, will reap a return. But you can never be sure. And I think there's a real kind of power to having that approach that few have the confidence to take. That's uh, absolutely true. And the way you put it too, it reminds me of, there is a definite distinction that I try to make about around my work, where it's like, there's a lot of marketing, but there's a great deal of strategy. And the marketing strategy is different than the corporate level strategy. And the marketing strategy, I rely a lot more on data and research and things that have happened in the past to look for trends and habits and patterns. But on a corporate level, a big level, somebody I would point the audience towards is Roger Martin. You know, and Roger, Roger was the um, dean of the Rotman School of Management in Toronto. Uh, but he talks about, and you can Google it, he did a really great talk, um, I think in like Switzerland or Sweden, one of those uh, great countries with mountains and chocolate. Um, and he talked about how all data happened in the past and to be a really great strategist. Yeah, uh, this is where the analyst and architect thing came from that we that you mentioned in the introduction was that like you have to be willing to take a chance, right? A good strategist knows that like I'm really taking a risk here because it might not work. And you have to be comfortable with that, you know, because a strategy at its heart is about not guaranteeing success, but giving yourself the opportunity to have you know, success be more likely than not to give yourself an advantage in, um, you know, how do I want to say it? Um, to give yourself just, you know, a little bit more of an edge in strategy because you, no one can guarantee it's going to work, right? It's not about perfection. It's about progress. And it's about, you know, eliminating, you know, stupid missteps so that like you can do some real creative work that isn't guaranteed to work. Exactly that. Well, talk, talking of missteps, uh, Scott Friedman asks, "What is the oh, most yeah. common, what's the most common mistake rights holders make while pricing tickets?" Okay, so Scott's asking for a specific answer around tickets, um, and since you're, you'll probably get a lot of people who listen or sports and entertainment listening because of you know this episode, maybe hopefully, um, but most people aren't. So I'm going to a- answer it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to take poetic license and answer it a little bit more from a straight up like pricing. Aim. Uh, because the, the reasons that people do a bad job of pricing are absolutely the same, right? Number one, people don't have a philosophy of pricing, right? They don't even understand the most basic forms of pricing, right? Which is, you know, most of the time, it's just pulling it out of thin air. So nobody does research, right? And you can do research on pricing just the same as you can do research on customers, on, you know, industry, on, you know, market potential. You 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 can ask questions, right? The... You, you can use conjoint studies. You can use the Van Westendorf uh, pricing model. You can experiment. You can do all these crazy things. So the number one reason why people make mistakes and the biggest area they make mistakes is they just don't 
have any idea what they're doing around pricing. So they haven't done any research. They don't have any philosophy or theory behind their pricing and they make it up. They pull it out of thin air. Um, you know, I did a, I think it's the last podcast as we're recording this in my feed on the business of fun, but you can search for it. It's, it was seven different things I knew and learned about uh, pricing. And one of the big things that I tell people to understand is like, just figure out, are you going to be a low cost leader or a premium product from the very jump, right? Um, have an understanding of where you're starting at in the market, right? Because most people, a big issue is they get stuck in the middle. They don't know, have no idea. Are they trying to, you know, just get business in the door, right? So then you might be a low cost leader or it's like, are you going to turn your nose up at nine out of 10 people, right? Because I, I don't need to work with everybody. I need to work with this little segment of the market. And I'll tell you the truth. When I started out doing this stuff, I definitely struggled with that. I kept myself, I was stuck in the middle for years. And I, you know, cause I was like afraid to say no to people. Cause I thought, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get another project. I'm never going to have a chance to do this anymore. But the truth is, is like charging people more has actually opened up way more opportunities than I could have ever imagined. And, and that, th those are big reasons that people fail at pricing. I mean, there's tons of reasons, but I mean, you know, not really having a philosophy, not doing any research and just not understanding what they're trying to achieve with their pricing. You know, those are like three kind of keys that touch everybody. Yeah, that's a good answer. Well, we can we can we can stick with pricing and, and take a slightly deeper dive now because um, uh, Julio has asked a question on Twitter. And he says, uh, Mark Ritson famously says that any and all discounting is bad for brands. Uh, do you have any thoughts when it can play a useful role? Okay. So this is a good question. And I actually, when I saw it on Twitter, I answered it because I didn't want him to think I was being uh, needlessly snarky. I was just being snarky. <laughs> so the first question is about brand, you know, do I think discounts uh, destroy brands? And the truth is absolutely, it's the worst way, you know, it's the fastest way to undermine your brand is a price-based promotion, full stop. Um, I wrote an article about seven years ago now that's called Discounts are for Dummies. And that thing has, uh, it has been like the biggest, as far as driver of business goes, it has been the biggest driver of business, anything I've done. It was, uh, and really the core of the, of the thing was like, don't discount because here's all the bad reasons or the bad things that happen to your brand if you discount. So number one, you lose brand equity. Number two, it's like you lose profitability. Number three, you teach a bad lesson to your customers. And that's typically that like if I hold on a little bit longer, uh, there'll probably be a better deal, right? You don't create brand loyalty for people, right? Because there's, you know, they're, they're just waiting for your price to drop because that's what you taught them to think about you, right? Um, you lose your place in the market, right? You have no standing. You undermine your value as an expert or as a, you know, quality of quality. I mean, it's on and on and on is the under, you know, undermining the brand value there. What Mark said specifically, he said that, but I think what, um, you know, what was really going on was Mark also said like never discount. And actually what he said um, is that you should feel a little bit like your like some of your soul is dying every time you discount. And I like that because there are instances where you probably do have to discount. It's not a hundred percent as much. Uh, I try to take an absolutist 
position on it, just because I found that it's so easy for people to discount and continue to discount once they've started. So, and that leads to the second question, which is like when, or the second part of the question, like, is there any time that you should discount? Well, and there are a couple instances that I'll give you, I'll give you three right now, which number one is like, if you are at the end of a cycle, right. And you're just trying to liquidate stuff fast that you're never going to use again, or never going to have a need for, you know, it's probably all right to discount that stuff. You know, if it's coming back in a couple months, then that's stupid. That's like kind of the J crew model of discounting. But you know, if something's going to go away forever, and you have like, you're sitting on like just tons and tons of inventory, you know, you may want to discount, just get the stuff out the door, right? You know, just get like recoup some value. A, a second way is, you know, a price war. There are instances, and I've done research on price wars. A price war can work. The problem is though, is that you have to do a price war the right way. And a price war done the right way is like, number one, you have to be understand what you're trying to achieve, right? Are you trying to steal market share from the leader? Are you trying to, you have, are sitting on such amount of profit that you just want to run people out of business? You know, what exactly do you want to achieve from, from the price war? Number two, you have to be, have a plan for what your price war is going to look like. Because most of the time when people start discounting, they don't know when they're going to start and when they're going to end. So they have no plan for what this discount or the price war that they're entering in is going to look like. And then the third thing is like, don't go deep enough, right? Like you see a 10% off coupon, right? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to discount. That doesn't move the thing. It's like going, when I mean say go all in, it's like going, be willing to cut your price 30, 40, 50% because it's limited in scope. You understand exactly what you're trying to achieve and you have the balls to go for it, right? You know, because you don't want to just hang around and always be a discount brand, Um the Martin Lindstrom book that's called Biology, it studies like neuromarketing. It showed, and his research may be wrong, but it feels right, so I'm going to use it, um, was like once you start discounting, it's seven years or more before people stop thinking of you as a discount brand. That's amazing, seven years. I'm, I'm trying to um, remember the term that is used in Australia. As I said, most of my family live in Australia, but one of them uh, up until recently was in the sort of pub trade. It's not really the same over there as it is in the UK, but the obviously Australia produces a lot of great wines and to protect the brand and that equity that exists within a brand of wine when they have to sell off their remaining stock, it happens entirely unbranded. There might be a term for that I'm not familiar with, but you can, you can basically buy, it's like a lucky dip, I suppose, because you don't actually know the brand of wine, but you buy it at half price, knowing it's it's worth more. Um, and that's how they ship it. And of course, then you're discounting. Um, but Julio specifically talks about it being bad for brands. Well, this again highlights that, yeah, it must be because they hide the brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of, so in the States, one way that that happens that, you know, and I don't want to misrepresent the example, but, you know, white label items here uh, or Costco does a lot of stuff that's like unbranded, only has the Costco uh, branding, which is Kirkland Signature. And nobody's buying the Kirkland Signature because or they're buying it because of the Kirkland Signature brand, not because of the brand of the producer of their liquor or wine, you know, so. I mean, those are those are ways to do it, but I'm sure that the Australians have a very good and colorful language, so I'm sure they have a specific term for it that I'm going to look up, and it's going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll try. I'll try and find out actually, because um, yeah, I'm surprised I don't know that actually. 
Cool. Well, they were awesome. They were awesome listener questions, and I'm pleased because it allowed us to to jump into strategy and pricing more. Well, we got to like some of the stuff that we wanted to. That's exactly right. It's like they knew. The final part of the interview, then, Dave, is our four pertinent poses. Starting with, what advice would you give to your younger self? Okay, so I was thinking about this one because this, these are the only things you give me to prepare, right? Uh, and and well, I thought the cute way to do it is like one: I would not change anything. Um, and I thought that that's like a little bit like I think people have been using that a little lately or here and there. And I think it's a BS answer. You're dodging the question. I'm not going to dodge the question. I'm going to give you some answers. Yeah, it's your time you're wasting, Dave. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, this this is like an old speaker's trick where it's like when you filibuster by like filling space while you think of the answer. Um, but actually, like if I had some advice for my younger self, it would be um, three things. Right. Number one is I would learn to be YOLO a little bit earlier. And by YOLO, you know, you only live once. It's like being willing to take chances and to trust myself earlier, right? We talked about um, towards the start of this thing of like me not necessarily recognizing that all of this stuff I was doing had a marketing angle to it or that it was like really valuable and it was stuff that other people weren't doing or weren't doing well. Um, you know, so I would like have learned to trust my, like I would teach myself or tell myself, be YOLO a little bit more uh, early on in your career. Um, number two, I would tell myself to remember the value of relationships a lot more. Um, probably in my 20s and 30s, uh, you know, or into my 30s, I didn't necessarily always um, put as much emphasis and, and as much power into the relationships. And, I, you know, looking back on it with a little distance now, I can see that, like, you know, partly I'm responsible, but then partly, you know, it, it's sort of like you put yourself in bad positions, which I think is sort of like, what everybody in their twenties and early thirties does is they put yourself in like some dumb positions and then you figure out how to get yourself out. And then you hope that it has no irre irreparable harm for the rest of your life. But I would focus on those relationships because it's, it's um, if I had a, if I was doing a, um, was isolated talk, I would talk about the power of the people that I've had the opportunity to work for and work with over the years and how important those people are and how I wish that I had been able to uh, sustain relationships or kept better relationships with certain people over the years. So that would be number two. And then number three is I would teach myself to not give a damn about other people's opinions. I would just completely discard anybody's opinion that I didn't ask for. Uh, and th those would be the three things I would teach my younger self. Yeah, really good. Really good answer, Dave. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Oh, yeah. Now, okay. Hero worship. Let's get this hero worship idea out on the table. And what's his name? <laughs> well, no, it was. it's just in general. I think, um, you know, we, ha we have false idols, right? Does that, that come from a Batman movie, I think, or something? Um, but there's false, you know, there's false. Maybe that was the Justice League, but in Superman they were talking about. But there's false idols, right? I would banish this idea that somebody has some secret sauce and some secret magic that you don't, right? Uh, I think that what we find as we dig deeper is that most of these people who are uh, quote unquote self-made or, you know, that we're idolizing, uh, you know, they have benefited from, you know, having the right family or having the right, um, you know, having somebody advocate for them or they, you know, no one's self-made. Right. So there's, you know, everybody, which makes the question at the start, right, which is like, what's the first job and what's the first proper job and what's your path so important is because if you have really made your way um, 
most times it's because of like a lot of luck. Like we talked about before meeting the right people in the right place at the right time. Um, good fortune, you know, and sometimes it's just the luck of birth, you know? So like some of these, this hero worship stuff I would get rid of because it, it undermines all that stuff. And I think it teaches people that they can't possibly be successful. And I try as much as I can to help people understand how they can be successful or show them paths to be successful. You know, the more and more work I do is like around revenue is like, I want to teach people the process of making money because I know it gives them security and it gives them an opportunity to be successful in a way that they might not have before. You know, so I would get rid of um, the hero worship thing uh, and be a lot more selective about the people that we're really paying attention to and highlighting and putting up on a pedestal. Um, You know, most of the people, uh, they aren't worthy of the platforms that they that they sit upon. Well said. Minus you, you are absolutely <laughs> should be, should be hero worshipped. Yeah, no, no one worships me for a reason, Dave. <laughs> Not even my family. <laughs> they all came up a long time ago. <laughs> now I'm looking forward to the next one because I because I because you've already mentioned you you were going to go for a more unique angle to some previous uh, books that have come up. So, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? Sure. These are going to be, uh, I I have a couple and I'm going to start with like two that your audience I know have never, ever thought of before. And the first one start with why and the second one's crush it. Um, (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm joking. Um, Those things are completely, uh, I would not, I mean, if they're the only books you read, then I would say, go ahead and read them. Um, But I would advise you to read something better. Um, so I have four books though that I would like to suggest. Um, the first one is fairly new and I don't know when the podcast is going to um, go out, but this book is coming out around, I think the release date's March, March or May 2nd. So we're recording at the end of April. Uh, and it is a book by Roger Martin that I mentioned earlier. Um, who's like probably the greatest strategy professor alive now, right? Uh, he might be the greatest ever. He has a new book called A New Way of Thinking. And I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy of it. And it is amazing. Uh, it is like one of the most useful strategy books I've ever read. You know, and he talks about, you know, understanding where to compete and how to win. He talks about, um, you know, his idea of integrative thinking, which is kind of similar to the way we would think about uh, improv. So instead of, but you say, and, and it's combining ideas. He talks about, you know, where people make mistakes, the choice cascade, that's the hardest strategy. It's a really great book. Um, It is pretty easy to read for a strategy book. Um, And he is a phenomenal teacher of the art of strategy. So a new way of thinking would be the number one book. Um, yeah. Number two is a classic. And this is a book that um, if people haven't read, I don't know what they're waiting on because it's been around uh, and it is credited as the first book about corporate strategy, but it's called Managing for Results by Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker has this amazing way of still being right, even though he's been dead for t- almost 20 years. <laughs> um, so it, when I was learning corporate strategy, Managing for, for Results was my was kind of like my Bible. And it's, uh, it, it still holds up. Um, you know, some of the references might be a little dated, um, but it still holds up very well. It's an uh, incredible, incredible book. And I would tell people to check that one out. The third book is in honor of, and we talked about her before, Zoe Skamen, uh, who talks about ne- the need to read fiction more. And so this is my favorite, I have two, I'll say like three favorite novels of all time. Uh, this is the number one one, though. It's called Underworld, and it's by a guy called Don DeLillo who is a uh, American author who has never won the, 
the the Nobel Prize for Literature, but he's always in the conversation. He's getting up there now, so they should give it to him. Uh, but Underworld is this 800-page novel that takes you from the start of the testing. So in American baseball, there's a shot heard around the world, and it happened the same day as the Russians tested their first nuclear weapon. So that's the start of the book, and it takes you all the way through history to the start of the internet. And it, so it follows the American century and it is like full of rich characters, uh, rich detail. Uh, it really kind of shows you like what it would be um, to have been an American and an American adult at that, high, you know, the, the peak of the American century. It, it is an unbelievable book. It's about 850 pages. It will um, hold your door open if you need a book, a doorstop, <laughs> uh, but it, and it, it takes a lot of work to get through it, but it's worth, it's completely worth it. Um, and if anybody asks, the other two are The Sheltering Sky by Paul Bowles and The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. So those are the three uh, favorite novels. And then the final one is people ask me all the time, like, w- tell me about a pricing resource. So Herman's, Herman Simon is um, probably the most famous pricing expert in the world. And I did not necessarily really know his work very well until um, Mark Ritson told me about it. And so he has a book out called The Confessions of a Pricing Man. And it is like maybe it is 200 pages, but it is the most um, intense and informative book on pricing that I have ever seen. Uh, it, it's kind of, it can be kind of difficult to find, but it is worth it. If it, it, You might have to pay a premium for it. It is worth it. And it's, it's called Confessions of a Pricing Man. And it gives like his history in pricing. And it is um, just an unbelievable uh, guide to pricing. It's, it's just great. So did I did I repeat any of the uh, any books from any uh, previous guests? Because that was my goal not to. Ah, well, do you know what? I think one of them has come up before. I'm pretty sure Underworld has come up before, but that's no bad thing. Damn them. Damn them. <laughs> yeah, but there's at least five there that probably haven't. And I'm surprised, actually. Maybe Peter Drucker? I don't know. I would have expected him to have come up, but I actually can't think of any guests who recommended that. So apologies if you if you have recommended that previously, but... um. I did, I did get corrected by a past guest. Apparently, I once did remark that something was the first time it had come up, and then uh, a previous guest, he was on WhatsApp immediately. Uh, oh, I, don't me. worry, I won't do that. <laughs> <Not happy. laughs> uh, awesome. There's plenty there, plenty there. I've, I've not read uh, Confessions of a Pricing Man, but I'm certainly going to look that up. But we will include links to all of those books um, you've just run through on the episode listing. And then um, number four, Dave, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and um, we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? Am I allowed to take poetic license with this thing? Well, you you know, that's that's your approach throughout. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I figured after you came on my podcast that you knew that there was who was going to have control of this thing. Uh, I'm going to dedicate it to three people. Right. Um, you know, and I was telling you about my um, my health issues. So the first person I would dedicate to is my partner, Catherine, um, because I had like a real um, serious battle with the long COVID. And I spent like eight, eight days in, in the hospital um, staring into the maw of the American healthcare system. Uh, I wouldn't have made it without her. So, I mean, like to not dedicate it to her would be like I'd be a jerk, um, you know, and, and she's just like, the, you know, she's just an incredible person. And, um, you know. Like, you know, going through the world with her is, is unbelievable. Um, so I want to first, you know, thank her and dedicate this thing to her. Um, 
two people that I want to, uh, or number two is, is I found out uh, uh, these two guys were really good friends of mine when I lived in Seattle. And um, only when I had my near death experience. uh, And then I found out one of the guys is actually dealing with stage four cancer. Um, It made me reflect on how important these guys were to me getting to be here today. I'm like, you know, your podcast, uh, which is, again, probably the greatest marketing podcast going, in my opinion, um, you know, is my friend Gilbon and Mark Five. And Gil has, um, unfortunately, I can't travel and they're having a party for him. Um, I don't think when I talked about relationships, things I teach myself, my younger self, um, you know, I could never quite express how important these two guys were to me. And so like through all this stuff, I realized just how important those guys were to me um, and how uh, without their friendship and like some of the like support and like just, you know, big upping me or whatever that I, that I had, they gave me in my twenties, I would have never achieved any, much of anything. I don't think, uh, you know, so I want to Gil Bond and Mark five would be number two. And then number three, I want to dedicate this to Mauricio Pochettino uh, because I got to <laughs> bring it back to something good uh, because even though I love, Antonio Conte, Pochettino is my man. <laughs> I love him too, as well, you know. What a man. What a man. <laughs> and I knew that, like, I would be able, I figured I would be able to be like, nobody's ever dedicated an episode to Pochettino. No, well, I'm going to have to try and let him know as well, I think. That would be amazing. That would be awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. Right, okay, so this episode is very proudly dedicated to uh, Catherine, and then it was uh, Gilban, Gilban and Mark. Yeah, yep, Gilban and Mark Five. Gilban yep. and Mark Five and um, Mauricio Pochettino. Wonderful. <laughs> we lost complete control of this episode now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll let you close. No, so as a, as a final call to action then, if you head over to this episode, we'll, ha- we'll list everything. So we'll list uh, a new way of thinking. Hopefully that's out by the time this uh, episode is released, if not pre-orderable. Um, Managing for Results, Underworld, all of the other books you reference. We'll link to you. I know you've got your website and we have uh, in our research dug out a couple of your articles on pricing and strategy, which we'll include. But how else can our listeners get more Dave Wakeman? Definitely hit the website, DaveWakeman.com. I uh, had a wonderful designer rebuild it over during the uh, early parts of the pandemic. So it looks uh, like I really know what I'm talking about. Now. So check out my <laughs> website. That's DaveWakeman.com. Um, He's a good designer. <laughs> yeah, she, she was, she's amazing. This woman is unbelievable. Um, as far as social media, you, follow, you find me on the Twitter uh, most of the time, even though I don't know how I feel about Elon buying uh, Twitter. I still have not bought into LinkedIn as much as other people. I still I do go over there a little bit, uh, but LinkedIn just Google or search for me. I'm you know Dave Wakeman. Uh, you'll see the big fat mug. Even though right now I'm currently sporting more of a uh, beard than I would normally do, um, you can find me on the Twitters at Dave underscore Wakeman. I'm still just trying to get the full just Dave Wakeman. I, that's what I want, but I haven't been able to get there yet. As far as events and talks, there if you go to the website, there is a store and there will be a calendar function. And so there will be events. I'm looking at doing uh, an event in Australia and also coming back to London so that we can go to a Spurs match. Uh, I'm going to do a, a couple of workshops and one will be around pricing and the other will be around strategy. Uh, I haven't fully scheduled those yet, but that's just because I have to make sure when this Spurs schedule comes out for the new season. Uh, that So that's completely the truth there. It will be uh, sometime in uh, 
probably September or October, I will be in London, but I will be in Sydney in November, the start of November. So around the first or uh, October 31st or March or November 1st will be in Sydney, but those will be listed on my website and they will be really small and intense uh, opportunities to work out like your strategy and your pricing strategy and to take a deeper dive on pricing than we ever did today. Perfect. Awesome. Well, as I say, we'll link to the website and your social, your socials to so make sure that those links are correct. So, um, Dave, listen, I think, as you know, I've enjoyed this hugely. Thank you so much for joining us on Call to Action. It was a real treat to be on here. I only thing I regret about our conversation is I don't know if I got to be the longest episode of your podcast like you were the longest episode of mine. <laughs> <laughs> what are we on? And now you're not far off, actually. Yeah, I thought about it. I was like, how could I push for the Rory Sutherland thing of getting broken in half? Oh, but I, yes, I... <laughs> But thank you so much for having me. I, I, I'm not BSing when I say this, this podcast is a wonderful resource for people, um, you know, and I hope you continue to do it far into the future because I think it really provides a really great forum for the, your guests. And I learn a lot every time. Oh, thanks, Dave. So, so do I. But thank you. That was uh, That's really kind of you to say. And finally, last thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. It's really easy to find Gasp online to get in touch and you can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.